If you haven't already, would you please open your Bible to John chapter 19? If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, you'll find that on page 589. Page 589, John 19, a small change of plans. I'm not going to this morning preach on verses 25 through 27 of John 19. I decided this morning to add that to next week's text. I probably should have told Pastor Curtis that before he referenced those verses multiple times in his prayers today, so I apologize. I was thinking that as... (laughs) Before I preach this morning, though, we should pray together. Will you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, would you please fill us with your Holy Spirit for me to speak well and all of us to hear well. And as we hear the preaching of your word, would you please ignite our hearts and instruct our minds and invite and incline our wills to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is the scene. Uh, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his closest friends and handed over to Jewish leaders who brought him before their Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. They charged him with sedition and blasphemy and demanded his death. Pilate, though initially reluctant because of his fear of Rome, eventually condemned Jesus to death. So, verse 17 They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha or in Latin Calvaria, from which we say Calvary. After his sentencing to death, Jesus would have been, and he was according to the other gospel writers, he would have been even more severely beaten than he had been to this point, probably nearly to his death. At that point, he carried his own cross, John tells us, and made it as far as the gate of the city, as the other writers writers tell us, where he most likely collapsed due to exhaustion and pain and blood loss and the horizontal beam of his cross was carried the rest of the way, we're told, by a man named Simon. Now, Jesus will be crucified in our text today. And I would like, through this sermon, to help us read this part of the narrative with a heavenly perspective, to read about this crucifixion of Jesus with a heavenly perspective, and this is very different from 
reading these verses with a human perspective, which would be the typical way to read this, which would be uh, the easy, obvious, maybe lazier way to read through this. You've read this, and you've heard this read, and you've probably heard this preached from a human perspective. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a sort of surface look at what's taking place. And your attention would have been drawn to the, the beatings and the blood and the spitting and the mocking and the killing. And the response to that sort of reading from a human perspective is usually pity. That is so sad. You'd feel. When you're reading this from a human perspective. It's a superficial reading of the text. And then typically after we're sad for a while. We shake it off and eat lunch. Sort of go on with our life. But what I'd like to do this morning is to read this narrative from a heavenly perspective. In other words, what is happening here from a heavenly perspective? So not so much human, what does man see, but what does God see in the narrative that we're reading today? If we can see that, then our response will not be merely sadness, it'll be actually the opposite of sadness, and it'll be joy. If we see the cross from a heavenly perspective, if we see the cross down to the very bottom of what God is doing, our hearts will burn within us. So one of my prayers has been and and will sort of be even as I preach as far as I'm able to do that that this morning for some of you for the first time you will hear this reading from a heavenly perspective and for the first time you will understand what God is doing here. So let me answer a very important question before we move on to that. Can we do this? Is that even possible? To read this from a heavenly perspective. Can we see what God sees? Can we read as we're going to that Jesus is being taken out of the city and then ask why Jesus is being taken out of the city. Can we read that Jesus will hang on the cross between two criminals and then ask God why is he being hung between two criminals? Can we read the inscription on the sign that Pilate's going to write and ask God why is that being written? Can we 
read about Jesus being stripped of all of his clothes and left naked on the cross and ask God, why is Jesus naked on the cross? Or can we just read that from a human perspective and not go any farther and not go any deeper? I mean, isn't this all just happening to Jesus? Isn't Jesus the victim here? Aren't these simply the plans of man unraveling? Can we go any farther than that? Well, yes. Because behind man's plan is God's plan. And behind man's hand in this is God's hand. And if God's mind is behind this, and if God's plan is behind this, and if God's hand is behind this, every single detail, then that means there's purpose in every single detail. And that means that I want to know, what is the purpose? What is the heavenly perspective of what we're reading here, God? What does this all mean? Listen to Psalm 22, which will be quoted in John today. In verse 15, the psalmist says, talking about this then future hour of Christ, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. You. God. The crucified is saying, you, God, lay me down in death. So if we think, no, this is just man's doing here. This isn't God's doing. Psalm 22 says completely otherwise. There's a lot of verses. But what about Isaiah 53, verse 10? You remember reading this verse for the first time? Isaiah 53.10, speaking of the cross, says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So you hear what I hear, don't you? This isn't just man's plan. This isn't just man's doing. This is God's plan. It is his will to crush Jesus on the cross. So this is God's hand at work in John 19. The plans of man are active here. And we see them when we read this from the human perspective. But the plans of God are active here. And we'll see them as we read from a heavenly perspective. And I would bring those two perspectives together in something Peter preached in his first sermon in chapter 2, verse 22 of Acts. And I want you to hear man's plan and God's plan in regards to John 19 in what Peter said. He's preaching and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Do you hear all the plans there? He looks out at them and says, you 
crucified and killed him. It was your doing. It was your plan. And what did he say right before that? And he was handed over to you according to the definite, every little detail, plan and foreknowledge of God. So we do have the basis to ask, what is the human, not only what is the human perspective here, but what is the heavenly perspective? What does God see? So God, our prayer should be, as we read this account, help us see what you see. Help us understand what you understand. And see this from a heavenly perspective. So there are three sections today. And I'm going to divide them as follows. Number one, the place of Jesus' death. That's verse 17 and 18. Number two, the proclamation of Jesus' death. Verses 19 through 22. And finally, the clothing of Jesus' death, verse 23 and 24. So number one, first, what is the place of our Lord's death? What do we learn in verse 17 and 18 about the place of our Lord's death? So they took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There, They crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. There are two details to see here. First, Jesus was taken to the place of the skull, and second, there he was crucified between two other men. Let's take them one at a time. Verse 17 tells us, look carefully with me, that Jesus, you see these two words, went out to the place of the skull. He actually, we know, went out of the city. This place, Golgotha, the place of the skull, where Jesus will be crucified, it is outside the city limits. So here's the human perspective. You're just reading... Here's what you see. The human perspective is that a man is being executed with other criminals. That's what you read. A man is being executed with other criminals. Here is the heavenly perspective. The Lamb of God is being rejected in the place of sinners taking on their guilt and their filth. Jesus, who has been called by John the Baptist in this very book, the Lamb of God, is being taken outside the city where He will be, from a heavenly perspective, sacrificed. Jesus is the sin offering of the Old Testament. So we got to go Old Testament. 
as we often do when reading through the New Testament. We want to see this from God's perspective. We need to see, we need to understand what God has been doing for centuries and saying for centuries before promised Jesus shows up. So let me summarize some things for you found in Leviticus chapter 4. I don't know when the last time you read Leviticus chapter 4 was. Probably wasn't intentional. In Leviticus 4, we're told about the sin offering. We're told that God's people, when they committed certain sins, they were to offer a specific sacrifice to God. The priest would, in the city, before the temple, take a sacrifice, take an animal, and the first thing he would do in the city, before the temple, would be to kill this animal. And then according to Leviticus chapter 4, he would basically divide the animal into two parts. The first part would consist of much of the meat and the fat of the animal. And it would be burned up there on an altar in the city before the temple. And it would be pleasing to God. The aroma would be pleasing to God. If you were there, I imagine the aroma would probably be pleasing to you. There was another pile. The sacrifice was divided into two parts, so there was another pile. This pile consisted of the head of the animal. The skin and the hair of the animal. The intestines of the animal. And I only give this detail because Leviticus 4 gives this detail. And the dung of the animal. Or the excrement of the animal. And all of this was put into a second pile. And according to Leviticus chapter 4, this pile was taken out of the city to the place of rejection, far from where anyone would smell it. And it was lit on fire and burned up. This part was taken outside the city because it represented sin. It represented that sin is displeasing to God and it represented God's rejection of sin. Now, you understand why you need to know that when you think about the place where Jesus is being killed? Where is Jesus being taken? Jesus is being taken outside the camp. He was to be the sin sacrifice for sinners. To be rejected instead of us. 
of the famous Baptist preacher S. Lewis Johnson said, this road of Jesus that he's on is not only a sad way, but it is the way of the stench because of our sin. And then once there, Jesus is hung between, we learn from the other gospel writers, two criminals, two robbers. Remember, Jesus is there representing me. He's representing you. He's representing us as sinners. He is identifying with us as sinners. So, of course, he is hanging between two sinners. Isaiah 53.12 says he was numbered with the transgressors. So think about this. In the life of Jesus, the entire span of his life, at the beginning of his life, do you remember? He was surrounded by loving parents and magi and shepherds, and now he is hung between two criminals sentenced to death. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So as we look at this place of Jesus' death, the human perspective is it's just a man being executed with other criminals. But we learn from God's word from a heavenly perspective. This is the Lamb of God. And he is being rejected in the place of sinners. And he is taking on their guilt and their filth. So that's the place of Jesus' death. Now, let's look at the proclamation of his death. There is a sign that Pilate hangs above his head. Verses 19 through 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This sign might have hung around the neck of Jesus while he was on his way to the cross. The sign reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This was a common practice when someone was crucified to serve as an explanation of the torture as well as to serve as a warning to anyone who might be considering following in the crucified's footsteps. The Jews reject Pilate's sign. We don't like the way you worded that. We would like you to say it This way, because, of course, regardless of what they said before, they do in their hearts reject Jesus as their king. So they don't want Pilate to write that. 
and make it look like that's their king. This apparently weak man being killed. They don't like the sign. Pilate knows this. This is probably why he wrote the sign the way he did. To irritate the Jews. To antagonize the Jews. Isn't it interesting though? Pilate gets it right. He gets the sign exactly right. There would be no disagreement from God on the content of this sign. Would there? Here hangs a king. And it is written for everyone in the Greek, Latin, and Hebrew-speaking world, which would be about everyone, there for them to understand and see. So Pilate, intending to irritate the Jews, writes a sign that to him means, here is the person who claims to be the king of the Jews. And what he writes is exactly what God would write Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So, this one might be a little easier. Do you see this from God's perspective? Do you see this from a heavenly perspective? What is God doing here? God is making a proclamation, not just Pilate. God is making a proclamation. At the end there, Pilate said something. What I have written, I have written. That's what you think, Pilate. You hear the pride in his statement? I'm not going to change it. What I have written, I have written. You can hear God saying, What you have written, I have written. From a human perspective, Pilate's just legally protecting himself with this sign. He's just taking a jab at the Jews with this sign. From a heavenly perspective, God is ensuring that the entire world know who is on this cross. Their king is on the cross. Our last section to understand is verse 23 and 24. And here we have the clothing of Jesus' death. What happens to his clothing upon his death? Verse 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, this is in Psalm 22, written centuries before this day. 
They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. The soldiers did these things. As if they hadn't already done enough to harm Jesus, to humiliate Jesus. They now strip him naked on the cross. For understandable reasons, when artists depict this scene of Jesus on the cross, he is typically wearing some sort of clothing. To hide certain parts of his body. But that was most likely not the case. When someone was crucified. Its goal was not just execution. It was humiliation. The crucified victim was not shown any mercy. The crucified victim was not spared any humiliation. The goal was for it to be as humiliating as possible. The tunic is probably his seamless undergarment. So the soldiers we are told, took his outer garments, four pieces, and divided them evenly. Maybe that was his robe, his, his belt, his sandals, a uh, head covering maybe. But they also stripped him of his undergarment, his tunic, and they cast lots to see who got it. And as they basically roll dice to see who gets the last piece of his clothing, Jesus hangs above them naked. No clothing. No clothing on our Lord. Again, do you remember the beginning of his life? At the beginning of his life, Attention is drawn to his clothing. We sing about it. We remember it. Usually at Christmas time when we're celebrating and remembering the birth of Jesus Christ. We pay attention to the manger clothes, don't we? It was a sweet sign. The shepherds were told in Luke chapter 2. The angels came and told the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, that this would be a sign to them. They would find Jesus, they would find the baby, and he would be wrapped in swaddling cloths. But long before that, in Psalm 22 again, verse 18, we are told that at his death, our Lord would be stripped of all of his clothing. So 
So there's a human perspective here. The soldiers are just claiming their legal rights. That was a perk of their job. That was their legal right. Whatever he has on him when he gets to you, you figure out how to divide it, but it's yours. So from a human perspective, the soldiers are just claiming their legal right. But there's a heavenly perspective that we need to see here. Remember, there's reasons this is unfolding the way it's unfolding. There's man's plan. Hey, we're just doing our legal right here. And there's God's plan. And this is happening the way God the Father and God the Son planned and intended it to happen. And it's happening that way for a reason. The heavenly perspective is the Lamb of God is being rejected in place of sinners taking on their shame. He's taking on their guilt. He's taking on their filth in this place of rejection. And now finally, when you didn't think it could get worse, there's something else our Lord intends and needs to do. And out of His great love for us, He takes on our shame. Nakedness is vulnerability. It is exposure. It is being seen. And none of us want to be seen for who we truly are, lest we be rejected. And so in the Bible, nakedness and shame always go together. And for most of you, the vast majority of you, that has been your experience. That nakedness and shame or embarrassment go together. There is only one place in the Bible where nakedness and shame do not go together. The only place in the entire Bible where nakedness and shame do not go together is Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. You remember the story? And there are Adam and Eve in the garden, and to our amazement, we are told in Genesis 2, 25, that in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Let me say that a different way. They were naked and unashamed. They were totally known. They were totally exposed. They were totally seen. And they were loved. They were loved and accepted by one another. They were loved and accepted by God. And they were totally seen. They were totally known. 
They were totally accepted. They were naked and unashamed. That all changed in Genesis chapter 3. Sharply and abruptly. That all changed in Genesis chapter 3 when they sinned. And we've all been wearing clothes ever since. It changed sharply and dramatically when they sinned. And once they sinned, they dishonored, they disobeyed God, they went their own way. We've got a better way. When that happened, Genesis 3, 7, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. They lost their righteousness. Think of it this way. Once... Adam and Eve sinned, there was ugly in them. And they knew it, and it brought shame. Once Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, there was ugly in them. And they knew it. And it brought shame. And they wanted no one to see them. Not one another. And not God. So you remember what they did. And their nakedness. Now with this new experience of shame. What did they do? Well, they did a few things. They made crude coverings for themselves out of fig leaves. They hid from one another and from God. And they made excuses for the condition they were now in. They sowed fig leaves. They hid behind trees. And they made excuses. Friends, listen. Which is exactly what we're still doing. In response to shame. They covered themselves. We cover ourselves. Every single one of us, don't we? I'm not talking about clothes anymore. All of us try to control what other people see about us. Not just physically. That's the tip of the iceberg. Oh, I've got way bigger things than that to hide from you. I don't want you to see my soul. I don't want you to see my heart. I don't want you to see my motives. I don't want you to see my thoughts. Good night. I don't want you to know my struggles. I don't want you to see my selfishness. I don't want you to see my stupidity. I don't want you to find out that I'm not as smart as you think I am. I don't want you to know what's inside of me. And so I sow fig leaves and I hide and I make excuses. And every single one of us do that. We try to control what people see. Because deep 
down, we are ashamed. I know there's something not right in me. I know there's not, and I know something else. If you know all that, you will reject me. There's no way you're going to love me anymore. There's no way you're going to accept me anymore. So I control what you know about me. I control what you see. We all have ways of doing this. We cover ourselves with works, with religion, with irreligion, with self-esteem. It's fig leaf. Some of you this morning who are obsessed with your work or you're obsessed with your grades or you're obsessed with your looks. You struggle perhaps with perfectionism. You can't be wrong in your relationships. This keeps some of you from developing relationships. Because you don't want people to see you. Or some of you struggle with, our culture says you struggle with commitment. You don't want people to see you. And them seeing you is terrifying. And you run. Because you're pretty sure that if they see you, they're not going to love you. You're pretty sure if they see you, if they know the shame that you know, you'll be rejected. And so you don't let people close. You run from rejection. Friends, one of the greatest lies in our world Listen, I really think one of the greatest lies of this world is you have nothing to hide. Oh, we've had things to hide since Genesis 3. That's one way to deal with this, isn't it, in a culture? You don't have anything to hide. You don't have anything to feel guilty about. You don't have anything to feel ashamed of. You see this in everything from pop culture to Facebook to legislation. This message that we have nothing to hide. The truth is, we have things to hide. And you know it deep down. And I know it deep down. I have things to hide. And I can say all day that I don't have things to hide. And I'm just me. And accept me for who I am. And I don't care. And I'm going to flaunt this before the whole world and I can do anything that I want. And there's no accountability. And I know that's not true. It doesn't fix it. 
at the end of the day, I still have an uneasiness with who I am at the bottom of who I am. You know you're not right before God. You know you're not who you should be. Can we be honest about those things? I do have things to hide. I should be rejected. I should be rejected. So, oh, how I need that heavenly perspective now. That this is the Lamb of God being rejected in the place of sinners taking on their shame. I need that truth. Christ did not hide on the cross. Christ did not cover himself, did he? He did not make excuses. He hung on the cross, rejected by God, rejected by man. I asked myself this question this week. Did he feel shame on the cross? He did. He felt the greatest shame on the cross. Not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. He knew what it was like to have the sin of the world upon him and have the holy gaze of God the Father on him. He knew the shame of it and despised it, we're told elsewhere in Scripture. And he knew what it was like to have the Father disgusted and turn away. Which we'll see next week. God gave us a heads up that he was going to do this through Jesus in the garden, didn't he? I didn't quite finish that story back in Genesis chapter 3. You remember what God did when he came to Adam and Eve? If you haven't read Genesis 3 in a while, I encourage you to read it again. An amazing dialogue between God and Adam and Eve. And that's another one you can read with a human perspective. But if you read that from a heavenly perspective, it explains everything. And he comes and asks them what sound like really funny questions. Like, hey, who told you you were naked? You are like, well, kind of obvious. And he has these reasons that he's probing them with these questions. Well, at the end of that day, at the end of that questioning, at the end of that confrontation, do you remember what God did with them as they stood before him now, exposed again with these crude coverings that they had made? God, he clothed them. Clothes are a wonderful thing. 
and you may see your clothes differently forever. God clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. It gets better. Do you remember how God clothed them? He sacrificed an animal. And he shed its blood so that they could be covered with the skins of that animal. He took away the fig leaves of human righteousness and he clothed them with a sacrifice. And what's happening here in John chapter 19? Here we have the Lamb of God killed on our behalf Rejected by God that we may be clothed before God with the righteousness of Christ. So here's what we've seen this morning. I hope. We have seen that the Lamb of God is being rejected in the place of sinners, taking on their guilt, their filth, and their shame. In conclusion, this morning right now, do you see who you are in the sight of God? It's not a pretty sight, is it? It's alarming. If you'll see it, do you see who you are in the sight of God? And secondly, do you see what Christ has done for you? I mean, if you see who you are in the sight of God, you can only bear that for about two seconds before you start lying to yourself again. The only alternative is to hear the gospel. Friends, that's your only way out. And you'll leave this morning going in one direction or the other. You'll hear at least what I'm saying and when I ask, do you see yourself in the sight of God? And you'll leave, perhaps, and you'll be very quick to dismiss that. It's folly. It's silly. Because you cannot bear to think that's true. Or, you will see what Christ has done for you on the cross. He has bore your guilt and your filth and your shame. Nothing left. So finally, each of you, what is your relationship to the cross this morning? What is right now, what is your relationship Christ. That is the 
question. I would invite all of you to come to Christ. To believe in Christ. To take hold of Christ. That's what the Bible calls faith. To take hold of Christ. To let go of whatever it is you're holding on to. Whatever your ladder is that you've got propped up against heaven. Whatever you're climbing to get there. Whatever it is that you're counting on to make you acceptable to God. That qualifies you to be loved by God. And that can be everything from your good works to just denying that He even exists. Whatever that is, you've got to let go of that. And you finally have to come to grips with Christ and the cross. And I would invite you and call you this morning to believe in Him. Listen, if you're here this morning and you want to come to Christ, if you're here this morning and you want to be led to Christ, at the conclusion of our service, I'm just going to hang out up here today. I don't know if anybody's going to come up or if there'll be several people, but I promise I'll wait for you if you'll wait for me. There's others you can talk to here, but you can talk to me. And I'd be happy to meet you up here and talk about what might be happening in your heart and in your soul right now. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for saving us. Uh, your ways are so good, and you are so good, and the way you have figured out to display your glory is, uh, is amazing. So God, we stand before you today as sinners, uh, not deserving any good thing from you. We'd like to uh, make claim of that, but we know we can't. Well, you've been nothing but good to us, God, and you've created us, and we have gone our own way, and we've rejected you, and uh, that shouldn't be swept under the carpet, God. We know that, and we know if you're good, and if you're just, and you are, then you're going to deal with that, and uh, we know there will be judgment, and there will be eternal objects of wrath, and when we know that there will be a display of your justice forever. I thank you, though, for being so merciful and for making a way for sinners to you. So, God, I pray that if there's anyone here now that's hanging on that cliff and they've got one last finger that you just step on that finger now, uh, they would drop into your arms, God. And they would finally stop running from you and run to you. And that by your grace, they would be saved. Oh, we love you, God, and give you all praise, glory, and honor.
In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.